0: Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back. We've made it to the end of our journey, and we're closing strong. Following our discussion of large-scale exercises, we're going to start out talking to retired Royal Canadian Air Force pilot and F-35 test pilot Billy Flynn about 5th Gen fighters and how they changed the playing field. Then we'll visit with retired Navy pilot Paul P.K. Averna and retired Air Force pilot John Press-Wheeler about Cubic's LVC system and how it helps address, mitigate, and overcome the challenges of training in the modern multi-domain world. Call the ball because we're bringing it home today on Fights On. Hey, welcome to flight school. Start drinking from the fire hose.
1: And so the way to defeat a Doppler radar is to get in what's called the Doppler notch. Now you're starting at the merge, emerging with around a thousand knots of closure.
0: Let's say you're 100 feet from somebody and and hitting them with the machine gun. You know, there's pieces that are coming off that airplane that are going down your engine, and that's a problem.
2: BFM is a is a game of uh, inches. We lost 70 aircraft to MIGs. The, uh, the carrier strike group is the, the, the basic unit, the uh, basic employment unit for the United States Navy.
0: We flew around, and 30 minutes later, I'm bleeding all over the cockpit.
2: Incredibly lethal, capable airplane that will slaughter the adversary.
1: And we, we talk about the limitations of the challenges that we're facing in our current training environment.
3: The aggressors are entering the airspace at this
1: time. Two sections, the combat spread, real tight. Roger, Terio. I've got one, and uh, he's in a left-hand
3: turn. you you're about to get gunned. <laughs> Box one on the F five, nose down.
1: Turn in, fights on.
0: All right, welcome back. Today we're talking with Billy Flynn, retired Canadian Air Force fighter pilot and chief F thirty five test pilot. Welcome, Billy. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you. Looking forward to chatting today. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the F-35 in particular, and in general, 5th Gen, what it means for the future and how it interfaces with 4th Gen and previous generation fighters. But before we do that, Billy, why don't you give us your background and your fairly impressive resume?
2: Uh, Well, sure. Look, I I flew fighters for 40 years. spent 23 years in the Canadian Air Force. As you mentioned, I was the first CF-18 nugget, as we call it, in, in the States. In Canada, we called it Pipeliner. A kid picked right out of pilot training, put on the first uh, first operational squadron, the first course, training course, first operational squadron, and so on, uh, flew in Canada in Germany. I was the demo pilot at the Paris Air Show in 1987. We'll come to that later. I went to the United States Naval Test Pilot School, and from there, spent five years at Edwards Air Force Base at the F-16 Combined Test Force. Tested in Vipers, flew thrust vectoring on the F-16 and thrust vectoring on the NASA High Alpha Research Vehicle, and then came out of that world and uh, different than would happen typically in Canada or actually ever before. I was given ca- command of an operational CF-18 squadron. Uh, my last part of that tour was at the commanding officer of the Canadian task force that flew in Operation Allied Force in combat over Kosovo and Serbia in the spring of 1999. From there I retired, I went to Germany to fly Eurofighter, Typhoon, uh, F-4s and tornadoes. I, I gave up, you know, living in Canada, driving pickup trucks in the snow. For Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music and the Bavarian <laughs> Alps and uh, driving Mercedes, I did that for four years, and then Lockheed Martin won won X thirty five, and then ultimately F thirty five. I knew it was a franchise program I wanted to be a part of, and so I gave up. I gave up Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music and the Bavarian <laughs> Alps for Fort Worth, Texas, cowboys, pickup trucks, and boots and hats and the whole deal. Uh, Lockheed Martin and I was part of the F-16 Block 60 test team where we developed this amazing uh, Viper in-house, no American military involvement, and uh, sold it to the United Arab Emirates. It's, I talk about it because it's a lot like JSF Lite of the many technologies that we introduced in that F-16. I spent two years seconded to the automatic ground collision avoidance team that matured that technology that we now see in Vipers and in F-35s and ultimately has migrated to Boeing's legacy and Super Hornets, uh, as we speak, being tested. And then uh, I spent 10 years posted at the Naval Air Station at Patuxent River. I flew B's and C's as a test guy, really doing high-speed envelope expansion. I was uh, the guy who got to fly the first public demonstration of the F-35 at the 2017 Paris Air Show, and at the end of the game, I have equal amount of time in A, B, and C models F-35. When I sum it all up, I have nearly 2,000 hours in F-18s, A through D in Canada with the Marine Corps and the Navy, and uh, 2,000 hours in Vipers, A's, all the way through um, F models all models. I'm, I'm a truly a fourth gen baby. And I'm going to come to that because we're going to talk about the transformation to fifth gen babies. Now, these days I lecture at the International Test Pilot School in London, Ontario. That's between Toronto and Detroit. If you don't know your geography in Canada, I speak a lot. I read a blog and theoretically I'm writing my book and uh, and and being super busy outside of the cockpit since I've retired from Lockheed Martin.
0: All right. That is an amazing background. And there's a lot to highlight there, and I think at the end we'll talk about your blog a little bit so people know where to find it. I know the Automatic Ground Collision Avoidance is one of your passion projects for good reason. Maybe we'll point people to where they can hear more about that. One of the things I really want to point out for the listener is you have a background in not one but two fourth-gen fighters that are premier multi-mission strike fighters in the world today probably encompass, uh, you know, I I don't even want to hazard a guess, but the vast, vast majority of the Western world's multi-role strike fighter. You come with that background as a truly objective observer into the F-35 and what it can do.
2: Yeah, and and so I remember I just said uh, I was a fourth gen baby. So when I look at the transformation of what fifth gen brings, I hearken back to 40 years ago when I was a nugget, And no one believed that fourth gen could transform what fighters could do back, you know, four decades ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look what F-35 is capable of and what it's starting to, how it's starting to change minds. And I realize it's just the same thing rolled 40 years later. I really think that there weren't enough Raptors or Raptor pilots out there to become the critical mass that would have educated everyone about what fifth gen could do. We all love the dominance of Raptor. But F-35 is, is so such a big program that now everyone has to come to deal with. The aircraft transforms everything. It, it is a game changer, not to sound like we're selling it. But it, also, we, we have to look at the men and women that fly it because they are not operating this jet like legacy fighters were flown. We talk about stealth in F-35 and, and 5th Gen, and we talk about sensor fusion, the, the global SA that we have. I, I, I want to get some terms out there right off the beginning. We talk about multi-role and multi-mission. So let's be clear. Multi-role is what we've had in legacy airplanes. We had airplanes that were uh, like a Viper or an F-18 that could do air-to-ground and air-to-air, and a Viper could do seed missions uh, and, and drop... You know, bombs and and fire missiles, Uh, an F-18 could could do that also. When we talk about multi-mission, now we're talking F-35. I can go back to my days going in combat with 70 aircraft attack packages, with every airplane having unique roles, or I can take four or eight f-35s and do the entire mission multi-mission airplanes that can really do everything and it don't don't tell me it's jack of all trades master of none i'm exhausted by hearing that because this is an incredibly lethal capable airplane that will slaughter the adversary and get our men and women in to deliver the weapons with the lethality that we expect and come home every single time I, I think when we talk in, in the United States, we have the luxury of multiple platforms, right? So we can, right. we can talk about in the Air Force having, we have gray eagles, and we have strike eagles, and we have F-16s in different, in, different, in different roles, and we have Raptors, and we have F-35s, and we have B-1s, B-2s, B-52s, and it goes on. That's not the case for the vast majority of Air Forces in the Western world. I, I know this because I came from an Air Force that had one fighter. That's it. It does everything. Uh, that's the same in the Netherlands. That's the same in Norway. It's the same in Belgium. It essentially will be the same moving forward in Italy when your fighter is finally phased out. You only get one fighter and has to do everything. So I, I think thinking multi-mission is more applicable to how we need to view what F-35 can do. It is lethal. Look, I, I, I loaded up with six... Uh, six air-to-air missiles now in the bay with uh, the modifications that come with the later lots of F-35. So six AMRAMs in this day and age and two AIM-9Xs. I get to communicate across model and share information amongst the formation so that everybody is just as smart. No more talking back and forth. No more using LINK-16, that unsophisticated data link. I don't care what kind of sensor people have I hear people talking about that they have an ESA radar and and oh they have a sniper pod. I could care less what the sensor is. What I care about is the information presented to me on the display in front of me. That's what matters to me. You know you want to load me up in in, in a non-VLO environment and I'm going to carry a hockey sock, if Canadian term, right? A hockey sock full of weapons uh, outside on the wings and in the weapons bays. We can talk about dogfighting and you know, is a is a viper better, is an F-18 better? I, I, we care about teaching basic fighter maneuvers because it's an essential skill for a fighter pilot to learn how to aggressively maneuver an, an aircraft. I want them to fight BFM. I want them to learn how to fight aggressively. And there's there's a story somewhere where. You know, in in a con, in some contest someplace, we're going to degrade all the range we have to kill the adversary and eventually potentially meet a guy beak to beak and have to fight our way out. Uh, but I do often hear about legacy guys telling about how they can beat NF-35 and I roll my eyes and I go, seriously, that's how you're going to compare yourself? Because I think about go back to the original Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. and and, and i don't know if you remember the scene but uh marion's being chased in in a it's sort of uh, in alleyways and out in the market and and uh harrison ford indiana jones is trying to find her she's being chased and at some point this marauder comes out he's all he's all dressed in black and he pulls out this big huge saber and he's wailing the saber because the show is impressive sword skills and uh, Indiana Jones just picks out his pistol and shoots him. And that's kind of how I view <laughs> yep. the comparing legacy capabilities to an F-35. I, I'm going to take a two ship of F-35s and beat your eight legacy jets every single time. And there's just no comparison in how le- lethal it is. And yeah, you know what? You, you might beat me in a BFM uh, engagement, but I'm going to kill you a million times over before you're ever going to get to that chance in, in the real world. And, and so... I I try not to compare legacy to F-35s in in that sense. So what can it do? It can do everything that we thought and so much better, so much more lethal and effective that it's transforming every Air Force that flies with it.
0: All right. So you talked a lot there, uh, brought in a lot there. And before you could really demonstrate that, though, I think everyone knows the history of the F-35 program. There's a lot of bad press that was assigned to it for a lot of parochial reasons. And maybe we can talk about that, but you had to do some real hard work with the team to really open everyone's eyes. And you had to, you had to go and show what the F-35 could do just as an airplane to make everyone stand up and take notice. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you had to do to make people realize that. (laughs) So, I think everybody
2: knows the story, but let's just go back to it. <laughs> at Edwards, at the end of the flight control development, one of the Air Force test pilots, an F-15 guy or F strike Eagle guy, went out to do an engagement where he was not hindered by the capabilities of the airplane. And he was to do aggressive maneuvering against what was a two tanked, so two 370 gallon tanks, two wing tanks on an F two seat F-16. And he wrote about it, he, he was evaluating the flight control system, but he wrote that it, you know, the F-35 didn't do great. And that became a story that just cemented an urban myth that F-35 could not dogfight. And with this urban myth became Became in, in in people's minds the cemented notion that this jet wasn't as good as the previous generation uh, of fighters. I mean, why would you spend billions and billions of dollars procuring a fifth generation fighter if you can't even fight your way past a forty year old two seat, two tanked Viper? And I got I understood that, and this this urban myth became so powerful that we, we were going to lose competitions, we F-35, we're going to lose competitions because everyone believed it. And so I was given the task to go create the demonstration for the F-35. I put together an amazing team of experts to help me, engineering experts to help me learn all about the jet. Um, I built the air show in the simulator. Our simulator is so much more uh, realistic than any simulator in history. It is, it is truth data. Uh, and then I was given the opportunity to go to the Paris Air Show. And I, I built a very special air show uh, where every maneuver had a story behind it of something very specific I was trying to to tell. At Paris, you get six minutes to do a show. It's not like a, a USAF demo that you see now or they're 15 minutes on stage or a, or a Navy demo. You have six minutes in very, very restricted geographical limits. With a, a, just a bazillion rules of what you can and really what you can't do, and so I built a very unique show for the Paris Air Show, and and the highlight maneuver is called the pedal turn, where you I climb straight up in the air, uh, skidded over the top at fifty degrees angle of attack, spiraled down at fifty degrees angle of attack, spinning at fifty degrees per second like a helicopter, and then stop the airplane under control and flew and then you fly away, and that pretty much right there shut everybody up. But I I showed the raw brute power of a 43,000-pound class F-135 engine, just mind-bogglingly powerful, the raw brute power. I did a square loop like the Legacy Hornet has done to show slow speed maneuverability and nose uh, authority. A slow speed pass at 35 degrees angle attack, which is slower than a Raptor or uh, even an F-18 flies in an air show. And just a lot of power and a lot of noise. And when people ask me how did it go, I have, I have really two anecdotes. I'd flown my first three practices at Paris to, to qualify the three types of shows. And I uh, came in for the first day. And the director of the Paris Air Show, uh, he saw me. He, he came out of a two-hour meeting. And he saw an open door. And he was a chain smoker. And he had the cigarette, cigarette in his hand. He was beelining for the front door. And he sees me. And he stops, and I speak French, and, and he comes up to me, and, and in French, he says, and I'll, I'll trans, <laughs> translate he says, he says, that show was méchant. The noise you make is méchant. And méchant means nasty. It, it means wicked. And I thought that was the greatest compliment a Frenchman would ever give an American. And that's what our show was, right? It's nasty. It's wicked. And and I had done, the last thing I'll tell you The story is, um, before I started my practices, I did an interview with Aviation Week. Laura Seligman was a a journalist for Aviation Week. She really knew the F-35 program. We interviewed before I started my practices at Paris, and I I got pretty aggressive in my tone. I said, look, I'm going to crush the myths of the F-35 once and for all. And she embargoed her story, but then she was allowed to, to write it on the when the Paris air show started. So I wake up the Monday morning of the Paris air show, I grab my iPhone to read the news like a good Lockheed Martin employee. And the first thing I see is uh, Laura Seligman saying F-35 pilot to crush the myths of of the F-35. And I thought, dear God, if I screw this up today, I'm going to be packing (laughs) groceries the rest of my life. And so that's what we did, right? In a six minute air show routine, we crushed the myths of more than 10 years of misinformation, of disinformation from our adversaries and um, all the haters that were out there. And and, and, uh, let's wrap it up because we're not here just to talk about air shows. Why does it matter? Sure. Because it finally showed that the jet was mature and people stopped talking about dogfighting. They were so... They were so impressed by how the aircraft maneuvered that then they were willing to talk about well, let's tell us about sensor fusion and how does stealth play into this and what else can, what, what kind of ISR platform is this aircraft all about? And we turned heads and stopped the conversation, the distraction about dogfighting forever and moved on. And, and as I guess most people know, F 35 never lost a competition. I'll, I'll credit some of that to that air show and convincing people. Just how impressive the aircraft really is. And, and again, last, I guess this is the last way to say it. People aren't ready to talk about stealth and the secrets we have and the highly classified capabilities. What they know is what they see, what's in what they see with their own two eyes. So if you're a president of a, of a nation, if you're a, a member of parliament, you're a senator, you need to see what this airplanes can really do. And, and it may do all those super highly classified things, but it also has to impress you with what what you believe are, are the traits that would suggest to you it's that good. And that's why the air show, you know, so foreign to what stealth is all about and sensor fusion. That's why the air show matters because that's all people get to see.
0: Right. And so you knocked that one out of the park. I think I can objectively say, because we see where the program's gone. And you've talked about BFM and pilots learning to fly the aircraft to its limits. So they have that confidence in it. That's stuff that everyone knows about at this point. But the F-35, as you've alluded to earlier, is just so much more. So let's talk about as much as we can you know, within the rules of operational security, what it does, what it brings, not just in terms of the fight for one force or one nation, but how it acts as a force multiplier, if I can use that term here, between allied and coalition countries.
2: Yeah. Look, it's a data gathering spaceship. Every time it flies, it gathers terabytes of data. It's the ultimate ISR platform, okay? It sucks up electron, electrons and, and when it lands, we download that. It's a spy plane that sees across borders and into enemy territories. It has so much, you have so much SA in your cockpit, you're the quarterback to direct the legacy fighters and with an intel on the enemy. And so how does that translate to everything else? Well, it allows us all to know so much more of the battle space than we ever did before. And is that just an American trait that we care about? And the answer is no. We go to war in coalitions. And we have since uh, <laughs> really uh, even back in Gulf War One. We don't do things alone. We have to be interoperable with our allies. And, and really in F-35, I use the word interchangeable. And so we do coalition operations. But the first time ever, everybody has the same airplane which, by the way, was not the case with legacy Vipers or Hornets. And I flew both, right? I flew American versions of them, and I flew other people's versions of them. In Canada, we didn't have an F-18 like the United States Marine Corps and Navy had, and Dutch F-16s were not the same capable airplanes as the United States Air Force flew. But now we all do. We all have spy planes, we all work at the same level, we all work in we we work in vaults and, and we deal at highly classified levels. We fly the same fifth gen tactics, whether we're Brits or Norwegian or Dutch or American or Italy or Italian. And when we all do the same thing, we go same way same day with that same capability, we are a force multiplier. We're not just a mix of a coalition. Together, where the the best that we are are the sum of our numbers, we multiply the effect of all of us being so lethal, so effective, all speaking with the same capability on the same language. And it's sometimes hard in the United States to understand why the Allies mean so much. But in Europe, we have worked at that for 50 years, about understanding how each nation operates. For the longest time, one of the most effective tools was the Tactical Leadership Program. I I went to it way back in 1986. And you show up for a month with two airplanes or four, you bring your ground crew, and you fly all together with other nations who, who bring their fighters, and you learn over the course of a month of your flying you learn how each other operates, how a German thinks, how they operate, what their tactics are, how a Dutchman thinks, and how a USAFE, a European-based U.S. Air Force squadron works. F-35 is the key node when we talk about multi-domain opera- operations. We can orchestrate and, and direct with this aircraft and not just keep ourselves alive, but keep those legacy fighters alive. I don't use the term the term interoperable. I use the term interchangeable. And here's why. Back in legacy four Gen platforms, we learned to be interoperable. We learned to work together in coalition operations. We had Brit tornadoes and we had uh, German tornadoes and we had American Eagles and everybody had Vipers and we had Canadian F-18s. And we learned how to plan together and how to execute large mass attacks together into enemy territory and get ourselves back in one piece. Uh, I certainly was part of that as uh, the commander of the Canadian Task Force in Kosovo, uh, in Operation Allied Force. So we, we could work together and manage as a coalition But we aren't all the same. And to be very very clear, the American capabilities were significantly more impressive than what we allies flew in our platforms. Uh, That's not the case anymore with F-35. For the first time in history, everyone has the A game. We're all flying spy planes. We all work at the same highly classified level. We work and live in vaults to protect the information that we're studying and our mission planning and our briefs and debriefs. We all fly with the same fifth-gen tactics. Whether you're a Brit or you're Norwegian, you're Dutch, you're uh, American Air Force, you're Italian, we all have the same capability. And and what does that mean? It means that we're not just the sum of our numbers. We're not just uh, uh, 20 aircraft together. We're force-multiplying each other. We're vastly more effective because we all see everything at such a highly classified, capable level, and it allows us to be so much more effective, so much more lethal than ever before. And and I want to make sure we all understand a notion: our job is not to go out there and pick a fight with every enemy adversary on the ground or, or in the air. Our job is to go do the task and come out in one piece. And so. It is often the case that we'll just avoid a threat because we'll see them so far away. We'll just choose not to engage them. We'll avoid a surface-to-air missile area and not have to worry about attacking it and shooting it down. We're going to see so much that we can choose when to pick a fight and when not. And that is so different than in legacy aircraft where we, you know, we had to bust a corridor through enemy territory to get ourselves into our targets and then bust a corridor all the way back. So dramatically more capable than ever before, truly a force multiplier with F-35 and 5th Gen.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important for the listener who's not ever been in the cockpit before, at least seen what you guys in the cockpit see, Hollywood does a disservice by implying that legacy guys are looking at a God's eye view. You know, you're looking at a at a scope or a screen that's essentially showing you in a legacy aircraft a wedge or a cone rather of what's directly in front of you. And then you are probably maybe getting some symbology through a data link that may or may have some latency and some spatial disconnect on location. And all those things start to build and stack. You know, if you've ever worked in construction, you know how dimensional inaccuracies can stack and suddenly things don't fit well together. It's the same thing in data links, and we're not doing that here. This this is truly a fused picture, possibly for the first time in, in history. Uh, yeah, look, um, I, I hear it often still. People
2: talk about their sensors, and they talk about, oh, they have a, an ESA radar, uh, active electronically scanned array, and talk about how good that is, or how good their electro-optical capability is. I couldn't possibly care. Oh, I, I do, but really, I don't I don't worry about the sensor. The sensor works on its own. I care about the information that's presented to me. And I, as you just said, I don't just see what uh, that slice of pie is, the, the the angle out that my my legacy radar looked out in front of the airplane. I don't just build an air picture based on that. And the oh by the way, the overlapping with my wingmen and what limited data link information came to us. I see everything, I really do see everything 360 degrees around the airplane. And oh by the way, because we all share highly classified fused data between all the aircraft in the network, we see everything for hundreds of kilometers. The entire picture on the ground or over the sea and in the air. And and when we, we talk about global situational awareness not just tactical limited situational awareness, which is really the case in those legacy airplanes. So you're you're just so much smarter. And oh, by the way, we're not invisible, but we're remarkably hard to detect. And we manage every part of the airplane to make sure that our adversaries are not going to find us. So we operate with that impunity of knowing they can't find us and we can do anything we want. It's like playing football when our team's invisible and the other team isn't. It is dramatically unfair in our favor. And, and you know, we obviously wanted to keep it that way. I still hear general officers who flew legacy airplanes talking about, well, it happened in Canada. Oh, we're putting in the ESA radar in the legacy F-18 and we'll get to see the targets out to 200 miles. And I, I want to say, how could, who possibly cares about your single sensor? I care about the amazing situational awareness that we all share in our fifth gen platform, because we're really smart now and we pick and choose how we want the fights to happen from this point on. So that's what we get in terms of information in the cockpit.
0: But the flip side of that, I shouldn't say, but, and the flip (laughs) side of that is now there's a lot more information for that pilot to process, a lot more fidelity to the decisions they need to make. So that changes the way we need to train, doesn't it? Yeah, you
2: know what? Uh, It's a different breed flying this airplane. We expect them to manage what's inside that cockpit. And we we often talked, uh, we've always talked about pilot workload. It was certainly a problem in fourth gen. We had four or five screens that a single human had to prioritize, synthesize, manage, filter. and, And the pilot was the AI in the cockpit. Introduced with Raptor and enhanced with F 35 was sensor fusion, the fusion algorithms that uh, really make pilot workload a, a different level where we take the human out of the loop. But we're busy. If I really see all that I've tried to explain to everyone, you know, if we each see that in our cockpits, that's an enormous amount of information and so our task isn't really flying the aircraft anymore it is managing that information and understanding you know what we need to attack and and what we need to avoid and who's on our side and who's the adversary and so we have a, a lot more complex a task and we've introduced the notion of independent decision making within our formations so Go back to the Red Baron in World War One, and all through history, we had a leader and a wingman. We had a, a flight lead and then a number two was a wingman. And then we'd have number three, who was a de- deputy flight lead. And we'd have number four, who was a wingman. And basically, the guy in charge, the flight lead, essentially told everyone what to do. And we all followed, essentially. And, oh, by the way, the wingman just did what they were told. And we have lots of stories of, uh, of never wanting to hear from a dumb young wingman. Uh, bingos, bingo bogey and, uh, bogeys and lead you're on fire was the saying. I don't want to hear from you. You just do what I tell you. But we don't do that in 5th Gen. They have so much information that we, we need them to operate autonomously. We need them to think on their own and contribute to the formation, or we're we're going we're not going to live in those high threat, highly contested environments as our force ship uh, attacking the, the enemy. And so we we have everyone super busy in the cockpit for the first time ever. And now let's lead to where where does that go? Well, I need to be able to train to that. I, I wanna teach you to do basic fighter maneuvers and maneuver the aircraft aggressively. I wanna teach you how to deliver a weapon and use the sensors in a difficult environment to deliver that weapon. But then I need to task every all formations and I need everyone to be uh, work at the highest level. You train like you fight, fight like you train. And so we need to not be flying like legacy airplanes and we need to really fly where we're taxing the humans in the cockpits like the threat that they're going to face if it isn't ukraine or russia someplace like the arctic it's going to be china where we're outnumbered three or four to one and we're going to need them all to be rock stars and to do that we're going to have to create an environment where we're going to train them differently than just sending out a pair of vipers or four vipers to do a 4v4 or 4v whatever a four against you know uh, a, a bigger number or to do tactical intercepts or two against two All of that's wasted time in an F-35. I need them to be super busy because the environments that we're going to send them to are going to be
0: wildly complex. Right, So that presents some opportunities and some challenges. And one of the opportunities, looking back at the guests we've had on the show so far, is that planes are becoming easier to physically fly. So I guess I should ask, is that still the case with the F-35? I would assume it is.
2: Easiest aircraft to fly that any of us have ever done. Easiest okay. information, easiest air refuel, every part of it, easiest you've ever flown.
0: Right. So we still need to get these pilots that that comfort you talked about, about taking the plane to its limits. But this means that that tactical knowledge, that tactical practice doesn't necessarily have to take the airframe in the air. Is that right? I mean, you can, you can talk about sensor fusion and making these decisions through other means because it's not... The flying of the aircraft, or am I off base there?
2: You you are uh, heading down the right path in, in the sense that there really is a place for simulation, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm a big fan of it in my in my test pilot world. I certainly lived in simulators. I can create an environment where I have created synthetic threats, or I can I can create a simulated environment where we're all linked and we can work through complex scenarios. And and I I need to be doing that. I need to create those environments where I'm, let's call it practicing in difficult environments in a four ship in simulators, as if we're all flying together. And we certainly have done lots of that even to this point in F-35. But then I also need to go fly an airplane because let's be really clear, I, I wanna be, I want to be an early adopter, but I'm going to be really clear in saying you can't die in a sim Mm -hmm. and a significant part of creating great aviators is going out there and scaring yourself and learning the maturity, the leadership, the judgment, the airmanship that that comes with real experience in the air. So at some point we need to go flying, but in those environments, I can create busy busy displays with adversaries that are simulated that I have to deal with uh, up in the air to make me work harder. We used training ranges and training exercises for so long, and they were very effective in the legacy world. Uh, You've talked about uh, Nellis, and we know for the Navy up in Fallon and over the Gulf of Mexico, there's there's great areas. Look, I, I grew up in Canada, so I, I flew in Cold Lake, Alberta, in red flag or maple flag exercises for years. Uh, the NATO partners used to train in Goose Bay, Labrador, not a vacation spot, but a great place to low level fly in the, <laughs> the east of Canada. In Europe, we used to do air com- have an air combat maneuvering range down in Sardinia, in Dutch Mamanu, and, and there's one in the North Sea off the coast of the Netherlands. Those are all places that we've used historically. But you know what, when I can see so far away, when I can pick you up at well over 200 miles, I can't use those ranges anymore. Even, even uh, uh, in a red flag Alaska environment, you're not taxing me or the Raptors, right? We we, yeah. we need more. And so we have to look forward in, in the future, we have to look at better ways to create the environment because going to those old legacy ranges don't work for us. And oh, by the way, don't give me third gen red air because I know you've talked about in the show, don't give me old adversaries to go up against. I, I need really capable airplanes to go fight against because my, uh, our adversaries, our enemies, they fly pretty capable airplanes. They may not be Raptors, but there's going to be J-20s when when a fight happens against China. And Russia is at some point going to sort out the Su-57. And if if nothing else, they're going to show up with a whole bunch of flankers that we're going to have to fight. And so we need really, really capable adversaries to train against. We need bigger ranges at at geographical uh, distances that are maybe even twice or more what we have today. And we need to create environments where... Whether it's synthetic or 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 a mix of the two, I I have ground emitters that I got to fight my way around. And oh by the way, a last thought: I can't just put emitters on the ground, the real thing, and leave them out in open open airspace or open ground. Even in cold Lake Alberta, I would have to put them in some place that is let's call it protected or sterile or guarded. And none of that is easy to solve. So I I think we have a real problem as we walk into fifth gen and creating the environment that will make our men and women train the best they can be to be lethal, effective, and survivable because the next war is going to be nasty and we're going to be outnumbered and we're going to have to be rock stars.
0: Well, I think that puts the point on the whole conversation. We've got this fifth gen tool and it works and it does amazing things and now the challenge is we need to figure out how to use it to its utmost because as you said we are not going to fight from a position of numerical superiority so we have to have enough quality that it overcomes quantity
2: yeah we really do we we need our fifth gen pilots to be equal to the capability of our fifth gen fighters And, and there's no magic to do that right it there's a saying, you know you know how long it takes to make a 10-year fighter pilot? Mm, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. As harsh as those wars were on the ground, they were necessarily low threat for the air component. That's not what Ukraine has told us, uh, taught us that we are going to face. From this point on, we have to believe that the peace of the Cold War is over, 30 years of post-Cold War, and we're facing a highly contested, high-threat environment. And I don't want us to learn this lesson after our own pilots die and don't come home. So we really need to think in a, in a clairvoyant sense. We need to understand with F-35 how to, how to integrate collaborative combat aircraft, drones, right? How to work mm-hmm. at satellite information. What are we going to do with Wedgetail when it comes on, on board? Because it's going to be impressive. How do we communicate with the new tankers that are like communication nodes? Look, our Chinese adversaries are, are, are catching up. I give some credit to some clairvoyant forward thinkers in, in Air Force leadership that understand, truly understand that what the threat is. But we have to get everyone that be below that level to really start thinking in a fifth or sixth gen and not just treat it like it's just a better, sexier new toy. We don't have time to lose. Lots of people talk about thinking out of the box. I think I need to stop hearing about thinking out of the box and have people implement and execute out of the box. Because uh, our survivability is going to matter. We are going to be tested soon enough and uh, we can't wait around any longer. We need better tools to train to make our men and women
0: that much more lethal, effective, and survivable. I could not have said it better. And I think that's where we will end on that point because I just don't think we could make it any better. That being said, do you have any, any last points? Anything beyond that?
2: I think we need to remember just how amazingly capable our men and women that fly really are. You, you have been in this series talking very, you know, some some real specifics about the intricacies of training and 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 what do our adversaries or what what our aggressors present and and how do we do that. I think we should really remember everybody that flies these jets really is at as good as we want them to be. Forget the Hollywood stuff. They go out there every single day and train like they're going to war. It, it's remarkably, remarkably impressive. And that should give us a lot of confidence that you if, you, if you're our adversaries, you really don't want to pick a fight with us. We're going to kick your ass. And um, so I'll leave you with that one.
0: Right. I, no, I think you're dead on. I think that we have the best technology in the world, or at least we're, we're in a constant neck and neck race. I tend to think ours is, is better and I might be parochial. But I feel very comfortably, uh, very comfortable, I should say, saying that us, and that's the global us of, of using the F-35 in those countries, produce military men and women, and aviators in this case in particular, who are the ones in the world that can get the most out of that aircraft. I'm not sure militaries that treat their people differently and train their people differently could get as much out of the same or even better equipment. So you're absolutely right, That that is the key. Yep. I really appreciate the time, and I've enjoyed the conversation, Billy. If our listeners want to hear more about Billy Flynn, where can they where can they take a look? Uh, BillyFlynn.com,
2: Billy spelt with an I-E. Um, my blog is <laughs> my blog is back up, and uh, lots of commentary in there. Follow me less on Twitter these days, more on LinkedIn. Lots of commentary about F 35s and fighters, uh, which is a great passion of all of us and um, yeah, happy to engage anyone
0: that contacts me on that. All right, well again, thank you so much, Billy. Appreciate your time. Scott, thanks for having me. Billy is always a great guest and is truly unique in his experiences. Let's take the fifth gen concepts we just learned about and add those to our previous discussion. And now hear from PK Averna and Press Wheeler about addressing modern training challenges and opportunities for the future. All right, that was a great interview with Billy. And now here we are at the penultimate moment or the ultimate moment, I should say, we're going to round out the entire series. And here to help me do that are Paul PK Averna and John Press Wheeler from Cubic, the makers of LVC. And I'll just go ahead and we'll get to know them. PK, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Thanks, Scott, uh, appreciate being able to join you here. Uh, my name's Paul and I go by PK, and i uh, been able to follow the series through the last seven episodes here, and it's great to be able to join you. I was originally a Tomcat pilot, uh, started out uh, from Naval Academy in class of 89, joined the fleet in around 92, right after Desert Storm, and uh, was with the world famous Pukin Dogs, uh, did a pl- couple deployments with them, Went to the F-14 weapons school, Swatsland uh, via the first uh, 10-week SFTI program out at Fallon for Top Gun, and then uh, was the training officer there at the weapons school before I went into the reserves, and then was the reserve community uh, requirements officer and the joint close air support officer for the Navy uh, action officer for a while. Uh, Moved a couple times to the desert, uh, and then retired in 16. Along the way, I've uh, had a chance to work on uh, concept of operations ops analysis and requirements on the civilian side as well.
0: All right. Awesome. And also here is John Press Wheeler. Press, you want to tell us about yourself?
3: You bet, Scott. So John Press Wheeler, I started my career flying the F-16 back in the late 90s. I was with the F-16 until about 2010 when I transitioned Uh, as part of the initial cadre of F-35. I actually went back to the F-16 after an initial assignment on F-35 stand-up and did uh, squadron command tours there in the F-16 before returning to the F-35 for uh, my last assignment, which was as the wing commander of the 33rd Fighter Wing, which is a training of F-35 pilots, uh, wing one of two in the Air Force. And really, a line through my career was training of pilots. I did weapons school in 2004 and then returned to Luke Air Force Base and had a couple assignments there, including my squadron command. And then, of course, that last assignment, training F-35 pilots. So a lot of time at the FTUs and bringing folks uh, into their first combat platform. All right, great.
0: So we've got a pretty widespread of experience here, so we can start to recap the discussions we've had and talk about the future. We'll start by talking about in brief the things we've talked about all through the series and, and go back over those. And we'll start with training concepts and, and flight school and the things we need to do to initially make an aviator in the first place. And with your background press, let's, let's go to you with that one. And let's just go back and remember what we talked to Sunshine about, which is making aviators not just intimately familiar with flying, but the environment, and the tools in their disposal. Uh, you know, what, recap for the listener, what are we doing there?
3: Yeah, so really there's a whole process for making aviators combat ready. And I think it really focuses on all of those skills, which initially come as, uh, in parts and pieces, repeatable skills, uh, and then you bring them into a more conceptual level where you start thinking of how do we go after uh, different effects on the battle space. And so that training environment really changes as, as the training moves along from the very basics of how do I master my craft into the how do I work together as a team, and then finally into how do I target a system to have the uh, desired effects and what I'm trying to do so it is something that increases in complexity as the training syllabus progresses and ultimately ends up to have our asymmetric advantage as uh, as a Western power is the thinking aviator who is able to make decisions in the battle space with the conditions that are present and able to be flexible in order to do that. And that really, I think, has, has been an asymmetric advantage that we've enjoyed for a long time. Right. And as we discussed
0: in the series, if we go back historically, there was no option but to do live training. You know, if we go all the way back, that was all there was. But as time and technology advances, there's both the requirement and the opportunity to use training simulations for a lot of good reasons. But one of the really critical parts of that is that if you're gonna train, pardon me, with high fidelity, you need to impose an authentic threat density, task saturation, and uh, authenticity of that opponent you're training to, right?
3: that's absolutely right and you you bring up a good point which is the tools that we have now to train with have taken great leaps in the synthetic environment and really the simulator environment i can remember back in 2003 for my first opportunity to fly with linked up simulators where you have a scenario where all four aircraft are competing uh, within that same uh, scenario in that same environment. Uh, and, And that simulator world has really changed the way we've trained over the last 20 years quite significantly. Uh, And what I can remember from that is, and and I know we've talked about this on previous uh, podcasts here, is the, the number of reps and sets that you get in that environment is greatly increased. You can dial up the complexity to different levels in terms of what you're seeing from the adversary. But one thing that is always going to be different in the simulated environment is the actual physical environment that you're flying in and some of the stresses and some of the uh, the things you just can't replicate when you're when you're sitting uh, in a simulator, and so that authenticity is is a is a very big key. And in my mind, you have to have a balance between authentic in terms of the threat representation but also authentic in terms of the environment itself and uh, you will always need to be able to perform what you practice in the simulator in a live environment so go back again to 2002 when i first got the chance to do this in a simulator we got to do a lot of reps and sets and it was great training but at the end of the day uh, when we went into the live environment with the same four-ship, with the same scenario, I could not have that four-ship perform to quite the same level. And you can't quite put your finger on exactly what is it, like what, what is different. It was the same presentations, the same threats, but there's just something about being in, in that actual physical environment that makes the challenges different. And so that's a, a big part of authenticity that we have to keep in mind as we train moving forward. Right, and I think we'll
0: talk about that when we get into the nuts and bolts of LVC and and things like synthetic uh, for the listener. We'll, we'll cover what that means for those of you that don't know it and really discuss where we bridge the live and the simulator because I think everyone's used to at least having a concept of what a simulator looks like. You know, even me, the Surface guy, uh, as a midshipman back at Woodby Island hopping into the, the EA6 or the A6 uh simulator did a pretty good job of replicating flight but it was a standalone item but more to the point of something you just mentioned press is you go out and you you train to these missions be it live or in the simulator there is then the need to look at what you just trained to and really discuss what happens so you can get better and we've all we've all been little kids outside playing you know with the stick guns off the tree and you're like no i shot you first no i shot you first and That's the other thing that needs to be there in training is a quality detailed system that records the flight data so that you can do an an after action review or an AAR of what's happened and really both understand what happened, but also train that aviator to analyze and recall what happened
3: so that when he's in the real world, he can do that as well, right? Absolutely, and really this comes down to truth in training. Uh, back in the day before we had the ability to really uh, recreate in great detail the exact science of where everyone was at different times, we were relying on the the pilot's memories and sometimes some tall tales of exactly what happened out there. And Mm -hmm. so getting to the truth of what happened, when it happened, when those effects were actually uh, brought to bear becomes a very important part of training and something that we have to make sure that we get as accurate as possible. And really that starts with what is the precise position of everything that's out there in the battle space. And then you start adding in all the other effects and when they happened and exactly how those were modeled and what things you can draw from conclusions of those effects and the timing of them all that becomes very important for telling the accurate story so that you can as close to as possible replicate what things are going to be like for night one of the war for example
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I like to use analogies. Sometimes I use them well, sometimes maybe not. But there's two analogies that come to mind. One that I think some people will get, which is if you're playing sports and you're trying to go back and realize what happened in that game or in that practice and you don't have game tape, it's it's all subjective, and you can't really get it right. So, so the other analogy, I would say is all of us drive uh, on an almost daily basis, and if you've ever been unfortunate enough to be in an accident, you know, you've got two, three, four sides between you, the other guy that witnesses, trying to tell the police officer what happened, and even just that, in something as simple as two moving vehicles at sixty-ish miles an hour, there's a whole lot of well, no, no, this is what happened, or, no, that's what happened. Now we're talking about three dimensions, we're talking hundreds of miles an hour, we're talking about visual range beyond visual range, split seconds. So all of that is critically important, but. That's talking about the training we need to do. That's that's assuming we can even get to a point where we can do the training we want to. So I say that by way of transitioning a little bit to the physical limitations that we've talked about in the series about conducting training. So um, Preston, we want to stick with you on this
3: one? Yeah, sure. I can definitely uh, address physical limitations. This is uh, one of the primary things that I dealt with in my last assignment was what were the physical limitations especially when we stepped into the fifth gen world and some of the training we were trying to do there obviously cost becomes one of the huge factors for exactly how much time can you give each one of your aviators those costs are driven by everything from the fuel that's burned the amount of maintenance that's required to uh, fly each flight hour and so you really more now than ever have to make every hour every drop of gas count Uh, so those things constantly weigh on our mind as we try to train new aviators Uh, then there's of course the actual aircraft themselves and the uh, amount of hours you put on the aircraft how much wear and tear can those aircraft take how much g for example how much sustained g over time and so really all of it becomes comes down to things that a limitation of resources where you've got to uh, be able to maximize your training effect for every resource that you that you end up uh, utilizing and that goes both on the side of the aircraft but also on the side of the training environment when you look at the limitations of threats for example both threats in the air and threats on the ground they are surely going to be limited by all sorts of challenges. One is going to be the number of airframes you can put up to give a realistic number of adversaries airborne, for example. The same thing goes on the ground. Uh, the electronic threat environment, we're competing not just in terms of physical airspace and places to fly, but also in the electromagnetic and the RF spectrums, where there are other in this increasingly digital world, there's other things in the uh, radio frequency spectrum, for example, where you have a limitation on the amount of uh, of frequency you can use to make training effect. So it's not just those physical things that you can see like uh, uh, the aircraft, but it's also the environment itself and the challenges you you have with competition that comes both from commercial and from other military training. And all of those are increasingly limited as we get to a, a more advanced technological world.
0: Right. And even when you can make the money work, even when you can make the people work, now you've got to physically gather everyone to that space. And the ranges are just not that large. The bases aren't that large. I mean, if, if people go back and think about Desert Storm, you know, I do remember, you know, from the ROTC perspective being in college, but just even then open source hearing about how crowded the ramps were and the worry, worries about where things were going to go. Well, you know, we train like we fight right? So you want to try and bring those assets together. And so trying to do that at any one range becomes very problematic in terms of just the infrastructure to support it, but then also the space of the range itself. And, you know, we heard Sonic talk about the physical constraints around Fallon. They're out there. I don't know if we need to really talk about them in this segment of the interview, because I think everyone grasps them and, and we will really talk about how LVC helps us address them. But something else you mentioned was modeling the threat and the limitations we have modeling the threat. So we've talked before about, you know, there's a fairly robust history of using aggressor and adversary aircraft and finding the closest match. But as time has gone on from a Vietnam-era F-5, A-4, sort of close replicant to the MiG-17, 19, 21 families, increasingly we diverge in what our aircraft can do to what a threat aircraft can do can you talk us through that a little bit and you know for those of you out there who want a lot of details we are being very mindful of offset because at the end of the day this is all about supporting the warfighter which means sometimes keeping the secret but with that being said press i'll go back to you on that one again
3: yeah you bet so uh, especially in my uh last assignment there when we were trying to towards the end of a syllabus trained to a higher end threat, a more capable threat, you really face a, a challenge between your limitation of physical resources and your limitation, your ability to replicate something at a higher end. So you've got a cost uh, analysis you've got to do there. So we got to the point where we were able to have adversary aircraft, for example, that we could field and they were a much less flying hour cost and it allowed us to free up the blue aircraft to do more training. The problem you run into though is it's very difficult to make that adversary at a point where it can punish blue errors in a way that a highly capable adversary could do the same without taking your blue aircraft, for example, an F-35, and flying it in the red roll. So if I've got a, say, a um, Mirage F-1, for example, that I'm flying against, I can put the iron in the air, but to make the actual systems of that aircraft replicate something close enough to an adversary that I can punish errors that are made is something that's very difficult to do. And the problem is if you're sitting in the cockpit on the blue side and you're sitting on the ramp, you're getting ready to take off and you've got an intelligent scenario that tells me for I'm going up against some higher end threat and that's what I've been told by intel, but I know in the back of my mind that for this training scenario, and the reality is we get judged by how we do in those training scenarios by our, our peers. And and so when I'm up there in the air, I I know that down on the ramp, I'm, I was looking at an aircraft that did not have the radar, did not have the weapon systems, did not have the uh, electronic warfare suite, uh, and could not really do the things... Uh, for example, an infrared uh, targeting system could not do the things to punish me. And so if I was faced with a choice between a flow for where I wanted to go and maybe some survivability considerations, I could fudge it a little bit and just go ahead and and go where I wanted to go because I was pretty sure I was not gonna uh, get killed in this simulated environment here and I could uh, achieve the objectives and by doing that, I am actually not fully recognizing the capability of the threat. And if that gets done enough times over and over, you start to look at extremely poor habit patterns that are, that are being built. Mm-hmm. And that's really the concern and that why you need to have a high-end adversary to be able to really make the blue forces train the way they're going to have to fight on night one of the war. That
0: that brings in a lot of a lot of great points, and let me put this back at you to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. So, you know, again, there's that limitation if you're coming off the same ramp and you know exactly what you're seeing, and you know, let's say, you know, you're you're in your F16, right, in that that initial part of your career, and your your uh, op four is an F18, right, and you know it's an F18. Well, we talked earlier in the series with Crunch and others about this being a chess game, right? And you talk about the, the Red Force being able to punish you. Well, if I'm at step two or three of the game, and I and you know in your F-16 that you can defeat that step of what the F-18 is doing, it's never going to show up in the replay because you physically beat him in the real world. And then step 12 down the list where a, a real Sequoia, let's say, would have never allowed you to to make that move number two. He's going to take advantage and get you. That doesn't happen because we're just not training with the with the high fidelity airframes. Am I am I
3: giving that back to you the right way? Yeah, that's right along the uh, right line of thinking. It really gets down to what are the lessons learned that come out of each of those sorties, and I've seen it several times where because there was not an ability to really punish an error that was made at the time, it allowed things to progress and you got to lessons that hey, this tactic is effective uh, for this scenario. When in fact, if that scenario was really what the intelligence officer briefed you at the start of the sortie, it wouldn't have worked at that point right there. That's what you're talking about, is that critical point where you had success, where if an adversary had greater capability, you wouldn't have had such success. Then that's where you start going down a false logic trail and this can really lead to uh, poor combat habit patterns. And that's why it's so important to get that, uh, that truth in training and that accurate adversary replication.
0: Yeah, so really avoiding studying to the test instead of studying the real world.
3: Exactly. If
1: I can add in uh, as PK. Yeah, PK. One of the challenges I think that we have as we have progressed from fourth gen into fifth gen uh, in this regard is the fact that we're no longer dealing with just basic kinetics and kinematics of weapons. We're introducing additional domains of capability that have implications in the tactics that we might pursue and also what we expect to, uh, for our adversaries and our professional adversaries have a daunting challenge uh, with a operating platforms that don't have those capabilities yet somehow trying to present as if they did and then drive home the critical learning points that need to be made for blue. I mean, that is an art form and it, there are certain things that can be done to game it a little bit But it gets back to the point of if you don't have the actual systems and capabilities that your adversary is going to possess, then it becomes extremely hard, in many cases subjective, on whether or not you were successful. To measure that uh, with any kind of fidelity in a debrief is where you're you're taking, again, a professional intelligence-based assessment to say, based on this geometry, that wouldn't have worked. And so how do you take that correct lesson back so that when you're either in the simulator working through the next runs or you're out forward deployed and you're trying to come up with a emerging threat presentation that you have to figure out, how are you going to figure out the right way to go about dealing with it? And we've kind of danced around a lot of that from an OPSEC perspective. But the ability to replicate those threats is extremely important. And there are ways of doing it, which uh, fortunately are going to allow us to keep pace with the progress that we've been making very effectively to this point in history with I'll say dominance in the domains. So air dominance uh, in a counter air mission thread, or as we've had over the last 25 years, the ability to generate effect at will in the target area of our choosing because we can be persistent there. There's a a lot of things that we're gonna be able to carry forward with as we continue this discussion. Right,
0: absolutely. You know, you touched on OPSEC there. So, you know, let's delve into that also from the point of view of when we go out there and we do anything kinetically we do anything real world we give anyone who can see a chance to assess us and the ability to protect our assets has immensely diminished both in terms of geography and observable spectrums so let's delve into that a little bit like what it's not just going to see, like, we'll go back in the day, right? Like, like, uh, and I don't think we talked about this in the series, and you guys probably know it, but, you know, if we'll go back to 1942 and the Japanese Zero much more maneuverable than our Wildcat, and Jimmy Thatch comes up with the Thatch Weave, right? You get two Wildcats. Now we've got a tactic that overcomes a shortfall. Well, I'm pretty sure if the Japanese could have seen that ahead of time without having to learn it in combat experience, they come up with a counter to it much sooner be it tactics be it design be it anything else we can't just hide physically and do that in the high desert anymore right because of all sorts of reasons let's talk about this uh press you want to take that one first
3: yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, point out on this one. When we were, when I was serving as a wing commander, I, one of my fellow wing commanders who's with an operational unit was actually uh, deployed, forward deployed, to a, a, a place that was hot and sandy. And they were there to provide a presence and, and be ready in, in case any actions would need to be taken. Uh, and he got to the point where he was – So concerned or our our national uh, command authority was so concerned about showing our hand for the type of tactics we would need to do in an eventual scenario that he was having to uh, have his pilots fly back to the States and go into a closed loop simulator environment in order to do the training they needed to to be realistic and ready for the threat. So that's uh, just a little anecdote to show you how much concern there is about the type of training we do in a live environment and how much of it is completely showing the the, uh, physical assets that are out there and doing the flying. Uh, so there are ways we can protect it, but we still have to be able to do the live flying itself. So running back and going into the sim is not gonna be the answer to all things, but the offset concern is, is so high that there are many places in the world that we just don't fly our actual tactics because of that level of concern.
0: Right, and then I'm, I'm jumping forward a little bit to maybe some of the things LVC can give, but just on a more conceptual basis, when we are able to say link live aircraft with simulators or like link live aircraft in geographically disparate locations, it then becomes much harder for an adversary to really determine what's going on, right? Like one airplane or a pair of airplanes, at let's say the op areas off of Virginia, the off Cape's op, area, op areas, maneuvering together don't make a lot of sense if you don't see the shared track of the guys operating over Fallon, for
3: example. That's exactly right. If you can obscure any part of that puzzle, then the observation no longer has context as to what the maneuver was against, or even on the blue side, what's on the blue side doing the maneuver. Uh, Those things greatly increase your OPSEC. If everything out there has to be in the physical training environment, then you can piece together what are, what are some of the tactics or what are some of the uh, procedures that are being followed against that sort of threat? So taking out any piece of that puzzle, which you can do through and, – and you mentioned the, the simulators, but also a common constructive picture of other things in the environment that everyone is able to see on their displays is another way that you can really ramp up the number – of adversaries of the complexity of the training environment while still protecting the OPSEC.
0: And we really are at risk, not just overseas anymore, not just in operating environments. So I I think with Sonic, we talked about war reserve modes and we had those on the ships as well with Aegis and things you don't tip your hand to. But um, I'll give a little bit of shout out to two previous guests. Ward Mooch Carroll and then uh, Paco Benitez, who just did a podcast a couple days before we recorded this about the rollout of the B-21. And I bring that up because they told the story of how the B-2 rollout was sort of blown because they didn't restrict the airspace and an enterprising journalist was able to get video or photos rather of the B-2 when it was rolled out. So they realized that for the B-21, but that just points out that we're not operating in this legacy environment where we, we always knew if we're going way back, we, know, we knew the Soviets had satellites, but at least open source. And I, I don't think anyone thought the Soviets had something like the U-2 or the SR-71. We've always felt like we were secure behind our walls. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And it's becoming ever more important with technology. And we'll you know pivot from that B-2, uh, B-21 comment on to fifth gen because fifth gen just ups the ante for everything. And there's a couple things to talk about there in fifth gen. We've heard from Billy about a lot of them, but let's talk about the training implications of fifth gen. Cause that's really where we're going here in this conversation.
3: Yeah. I think the, the place to start with this, when you look at it from a fifth gen perspective is you're really looking at what are the things that make something fifth gen. One is the stealth capability that you have, but the other one is the ability to have sensor fusion and have increased battle space awareness where you're taking things off the pilot's plate where the operator and other platforms has got to combine that picture in their own mind to create a more complete picture. And that's really taken a, a, the vast majority of, of the uh, of the brain power of the operator to do that while flying once you start getting to fifth gen you have that ability with sensor fusion to put everything onto one display that has the complete picture built for you there's still some things you've got to you've got to be able to fill in but it's it's a much more complete picture that's out there of the battle space and so now you're able to shift your thinking to broader things to include what are the other blue systems, the other weapons that you can bring to bear from other platforms. You can do some more quarterbacking of what is going on in the battle space. And and that's really the key difference is how do you train to do that? You have to have a more complex scenario on both sides of the ledger. So it's got to be on the blue side and the red side and the supporting asset side. Those effects need to be actually. brought in because you're doing a lot more than just trying to garner SA for yourself you're trying to garner SA that you then need to figure out how do I transport that SA to the rest of the battle space and when you look at the uh, fifth gen you're also looking at weapons limitations so you've got all these great sensors but To make something stealthy, you're going to have to carry things internally, which means you're not going to have quite the weapons availability that you would in other platforms. So you spend a lot of your time thinking outside of your own jet, a lot more than you had in fourth gen type of weapon systems. And that's a huge difference that's enabled by the sensors and just by the situation.
0: we talked with Billy and I think we'll talk in, in future projects about the melding of fifth gen and fourth or, or four point five gen to address some of those concerns, such as, you know, a weapon sump, if you will. Where where's your depth? You know, we see these reports of uh, the Chinese turning MiG-19s into, you know, drones now. And, you know, as an Aegis guy, what was our big worry was a rollback attack, right? We're gonna run out of missiles before they they run out of missiles to shoot at the carrier. But when you start talking about melding those things, my understanding is that when F-35 in particular was first rolled out, there was some misconception of how to use it. It was seen as sort of a super fourth gen rather than a revolutionary fifth gen aircraft, right? And that that gave sort of the analogy to what Billy talked about, some bad development press. There was a little bit of initial bad Integration press, this isn't about the F-35, but it's talking about how we integrate these systems. So let's talk about some mistakes that were made early on with the F-35 so that people understand we need to be aware not to repeat those mistakes in training.
3: Yes, as in any uh, new platform that comes online, where do you find the operators for that platform? They don't just exist. You've got to create them. So they've got to come from somewhere. So for better or worse, you're going to get those operators from folks who have employed different weapon systems at a different time. And so they're going to bring to that new weapon system a way of thinking that that, that they've grown up with. I suffered from the same thing. I went to the weapons school for the F-16, so there's a fourth-gen mentality that's really been ingrained into my thinking, and a lot of that mentality concentrates on really targeting targets, or how do we how do we get to this particular uh, target or, or this particular uh, effect, versus being able to analyze something more holistically, because I didn't have availability to the information that I had in in the fifth gen aircraft. So to develop a syllabus or develop a training plan that really gets to the complexities of what you're trying to do when you're becoming someone who targets systems instead of targets targets, that's a different way of thinking and and one that has taken a while to really get into the, the training plan. And a lot of that is based on where we come from and and what our training was up to that point. We're now getting to the point though that we have operators who have never flown in another aircraft and they're coming directly into the F-35. One of the things that has been done well in my opinion though is there's been a lot more of a joint development path for F-35 training in particular because you've got three different services that are employing that platform, and they're, and it's focused on the weapons schools and Fallon, Nellis, and down at Yuma, where the relationship between the instructors who are the cadre at those units have very constant communication, and so the development has actually taken off, and it's because of that communication, but I think it that is overcoming a lot of the uh, initial false starts, if you will or uh the the bringing our old baggage there's a new way of of being willing to reach out and and get that uh, cross communication going between services which has helped to make the platform a a little bit more successful and helped us to develop into new ways of thinking that has aided in uh, fifth gen development
1: impressive i can add in there uh i think there's other there's two other points uh with the f35 introduction or rollout one of which was that the capabilities that the very early lot airplanes had is nowhere near what the lot 17, 18, 19s are going to be, and the initial capabilities with respect to the weapons that they're going to have or, or, or the tactics that they're going to use will evolve pretty dramatically as you go from block to block. Um, that's something that uh, if you're flying a TR2 jet versus a TR3 jet, you may be doing things completely differently, and that's a fu- that's just a the benefit of having new capability to bring it onto the airplane. But it also drives a little bit on uh, once you get past the original basic building blocks of, of learning. So if I wanna learn how to shoot an AMRAM as an example, okay, I'm gonna, there's there's a ground school that I'll go through that uh, is, is taught. I'll go in a simulator, I'll learn how to sh- uh, employ on a specific timeline, and then I'll go out there and practice it in the air if I can against the target. And that's fairly universal between a fourth gen platform and, and an F-35 doing that but it diverges rapidly because that's not the point of the f-35s being in a battle space it happens to be a task that they might have to do at some point either as part of an offensive action or a defensive action and that basic building block is somewhat similar so when we took those original fourth gen guys and put them in the fifth gen airplane you know that's what they they started out doing and that was what they learned but In reality, the mission of the airplane is really different. So getting to that point where we're now thinking about how do you train somebody to be that quarterback in a battle space? um, How do you process the type of information that you're getting, which is a lot different than what you might've gotten in, in the fourth gen side of the world? What your role fundamentally becomes is different. And we saw that in prior communities adapting new missions because they brought on additional capabilities. This was a revolutionary jump, I think, for not only the people that were going to operate the fifth gen platform, but for everybody else working with them. So because of the high classification levels with a lot of the stuff, there was really no way of understanding how that fighter integration was going to actually mature. And that was, I think, a a critical problem on our physical ranges, if you will. How do you make sure that as a fourth gen guy, I understand what the fifth gen guy is going to, where he's going to be, generally speaking, what he's going to be doing, what kind of interaction I'm supposed to have with them in order to prosecute or, or, or take care of a mission. And that is work that had to be sorted out. That's why I think Sonic might have alluded to it. That's why they rewrote the Top Gun syllabus. But initially when it showed up at Fallon, they were operating it as a basically a fourth gen platform. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you put that kind of a capability out there? And it's just because that's all they knew. Most of those people aren't part of the development cadre in transitioning for a future requirement into a real capability assessing how it will work what what the real capabilities are until you know they they it it gets out there into the fleet and they've had a chance to work alongside them
0: right and for all the reasons we've already listed it's hard to bring all those people together and so maybe you're not getting that many looks at it the more i hear about it the more i I liken the f35 to trying to introduce iphone whatever we're number we're up to to someone who not only was raised on, but has been using a dial telephone up till now. It, it's not just that, hey, I, oh, there's a screen. I got, I got to hit the buttons on the screen. No, you're missing the entire point. This is not just a tool to make a voice call on a landline anymore. Right. It's something entirely different.
1: It's a good Thank analogy.
0: Thank you. With that said, let's talk about LVC. Let's talk about what it is, and then we'll talk about how it addresses these concerns and uh, PK, am I starting with you here? Sure. On what LVC is? Okay.
1: Yeah, terms of reference are important because there's a lot of folks that uh, think they understand what when we say, hey, we're, we're, the the salvation for how to go forward with training is related to LVC, and and they kind of miss some of the nuances which make it that impactful. And we we talked about the limitations or the challenges that we're facing in our current training environments. So live, virtual, and constructive, There's the definitions are important. So live means operators operating in real airplanes uh, or real platforms. It could be ships. It could be tanks. It could be helicopters. But they are actually in the live machines. You have virtual, which is traditionally simulators, man-in-the-loop simulators. And then constructives are computer-generated forces, or CGFs. And we've operated with live and constructive uh, together in, uh, we call that embedded training. So we have the computer-generate targets, whether they're air targets or ground targets, and they're fairly basic in terms of the presentation. They help us with our reps and sets while we're in the live airplane. But traditionally, that's very stovepiped by platform, so we can't share that uh, same picture on what the threat presentation is across different platform types. Um, and then also, in, when we're in simulators that man in a loop simulator or operating in a loop simulator, uh, we're working against constructives as well. And so, that fidelity, we have made attempts at uh, linking simulators of different platform types together. Some challenges with that because the protocols that we use are different and many times the fidelity of the presentation isn't what we need it to be, particularly as we start getting into the fifth gen environment. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as as it rolls out and what the future might be. But the nirvana for addressing the challenges that we've talked to at this point is really the blending of those environments. So blending live, virtual, constructive together. And that brings along with it several important capabilities. We'll talk a little bit about how do you get there, how does how does that work, but some of the benefits that you get, or let's just say the things that you need in, in that environment. if I can do uh, one of the important concepts is guising, okay for participants on the red side we talked about previously that F5 or that F18 that's an adversary on the ramp that I'm looking at before they take off to go out to be my bandit for the day okay on my systems I see him as an F18 or I see him as that F5 and I see him at the range that I would normally see him at so for me, there's an artificiality as a blue player because if he's trying to emulate a red threat, a sophisticated red threat, there's no way that he can actually change his characteristics to look like what I expect him to see or expect him to look like on my systems. And the ability to blend multiple different types of sensors and have a, a, a correlated uh, understanding of what that threat is at, at, at distance is what we rely on in the fifth gen world to be able to figure out, okay, that's a friendly and that's not a friendly. So uh, guising is the ability to replace entity information with specific uh, details that are from a different platform. And in, in this world, what we really mean by that is there's physical properties, there's IR properties, there's various signatures that are essentially attributes. Of a particular entity, and in the simulator world, a, a constructive target has all of those entity or attributes that are impacted by the environment, by the behavior of the whether they're controlled by an operator in the loop or they are computer driven. So. Those things could be in order for it to fly at Mach 2, it's going to have to be in full afterburner. And so the IR signature on that particular entity is going to be fairly large. And that, that means that I should be able to see him at a further distance on a forward-looking infrared or an ERST or whatever system I might have. If, I, if my platform is not an afterburning platform though, how am I going to be able to generate that effect for my blue uh, target or my, uh, my, my blue team? Well, with guising, I can replace the entity attribute information with the attribute information that is important for the presentation. So that instead of seeing that F5, I see a J16, I see a J20, I see a MIG-29, whatever that platform happens to be. And it's that authentic representation of the threat, the surface threat, the air threat, that gives me that realism that I'm looking for. Because now I'm actually shooting on timeline. I'm interacting as if it were real. And I'm taking the lessons learned more faithfully back to the debrief to say, you know what, these tactics, I didn't execute them well. And as a result, this is why I suffered a loss here. Those are correlated by the fact that the behaviors of the participants in the battle space were correct or authentic. So that's an important feature. So being able to uh, guide participants and then Increase the number of those participants appropriate for the presentation that I need for Red to show me on the physical, uh, within the physical limitations that I have to operate in as the live blue player, is another benefit of having a blended LVC environment. I can put in a hundred constructive air targets, I can put in thousands of surface threat targets. And they can all be interacting in the basic behaviors of an integrated air defense system that allow me to essentially train against it the way I need to. That's something that I can't replicate physically today. I mean, we had the constant PEG program where we might have had ones or twosies of particular threat platforms that we could train against, but that wasn't available everywhere. And it's so it, we, we rely still on surrogates to prevent to provide training capability. So the more faithful we can make those surrogates appear for the purposes of our training, the more authentic that training capability becomes. Another part of this that's important is the interoperability. If I don't if I can do it for one platform and one platform only, how much of a quality of training do I actually deliver because the point is, I think Sonic uh, brought out when they, uh, all the aviators show up and the surface uh, operators show up at Fallon to do integrated training, it's about how these platforms work together. It's about how these capabilities synergistically work as opposed to, hey, my F-18 can deliver four shapes at this range you know, kinematically, and, and so plug me in where you need me to. It's not about that. I think the thing that we have looked at over the last 25 years has been really having, I call it the static uh, uh, sanctuary. So I can set the conditions in the uh, real world uh, over a particular threat area where I'm not worried about being able to hang around loiter or bring effects uh, to bear rapidly against a potential threat target on the ground or even in the air. I've, I've got the ability to pick and choose based on how I want to tr- address the problem. Going forward with a potential peer fight, we no longer have the luxury of having that superiority. We're going to have to create, I'll say, dynamic sanctuary. So that means I'm going to temporarily create a local area where I can successfully operate and and then i'm not going to be able to hold on to that for very long and then i'll have to retrograde to prevent losses and allow me to go back and fight again but it's that synchronization of multiple platforms where i need the interoperability in training so that's another important feature and it's got to be across multiple mission threads because we talked about true when a peer fight this is now a multi-domain environment it's not just about some kinetics uh, of uh, it's non-kinetics as well and space and cyber start coming to bear. And there are certain things that I'm going to be able to pick up within my cockpit, depending on the platform. And there's other things I'm just going to have to assume are going the right way. And I need to understand what I'm going to be able to see in my cockpit on night one. And that is relative to all the other players that are out there that I'm going to be working with. So that interoperability is very important I, I will also offer that you know the the other things we need we talked about opsec being able to encrypt that environment so that the signals that are being transmitted between live participants and the ground which connects the simulators that are joining in on the uh, on the fun there there's no way of understanding what those signals actually mean or say so back to Press's earlier analogy or, or, or comment, you may see a couple aircraft flying around off So I guess it was you, Scott, that was bringing that up. But you have no idea what they're doing. And because if you do the LVC piece blended correctly, you don't even have to admit anything live because everything is done in that synthetic environment. So I'm, stimu- I'm, I'm using effects from a bespoke system that I may have on a blue platform. And it's those effects that are being recognized in the other participant cockpits and simulators uh, and, and for the computer forces to react to that are how the scenario is being sustained. That's a feature which many people don't fully appreciate. I can operate my systems without having to actually light them off. Now there's times when I want to, to make sure I'm up checking uh, the end to end capabilities because we wanna make sure that all the systems are gonna work when we go airborne. But fundamentally, I don't need to rely on having a working radar to be able to participate in the LVC environment. I mean, that's a, right. that's a game changer that many people don't appreciate.
0: Yeah, there's uh, I'll sort of start there with the last thing you said because we've talked about limitations and having airframes and how often and it's not limited to aviation, but how often can you not fly a hop because you're down on a radar and you're not gonna get the training value? Or I think we've had a couple of guests talk about, you know, we we went and flew it anyway, but we really didn't get the value. So there's a first order effect of, now I haven't wasted my training time, but there's also a second order effect. And I think Press, you alluded to it earlier in lifespan of parts. Uh, If I don't have to burn lifespan of parts in training, I get a lot more lifespan in combat and in a world where, what's the saying, you know, amateurs talk about tactics and professionals talk about logistics, all those parts have to get to the battlefront somehow. So the the less parts we need, the better. I mean, and that's just one little piece. I'm just sort of zooming down on one little piece of what you said. It's, it's much more all-encompassing than that.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll also add like you know, to, I think it was touched upon in the prior episodes with uh, Nellis and, and uh, Red Flag training and, and uh, Fallon training. Today, in a Red Flag event, you're gonna spend a full day plus mission planning, okay? Mm-hmm. With your strike teams, you're gonna figure out how you're going to take down the, um, the, the, the threat, you're gonna work the deconfliction plans, you're gonna work the electromagnetic spectrum deconfliction stuff and then you're gonna go brief the hell out of it and then you're gonna walk to a jet and then the jet is broken, okay? And so you've got that one air crew that can't go join their compadres that are actually launching for the real mission. Why not throw them in the simulator and let them fly Mm -hmm. alongside and get the reps and sets? At least they are connecting a larger part of what they planned, and to see it unfold with some sort of representation, other than waiting back at the bar and saying, "You, you missed, you really missed a great <laughs> one there." You know, that's another uh, benefit of having that kind of an environment to go along. But for a lot of reasons, having the ability to connect Sims into the environment is is productive, and and I'll offer it from a just a standpoint of the behaviors of the threats. Your professional adversaries are there to help facilitate learning, and they are able to punish Blue, as an example, when they are failing to execute their game plan, they're falling behind on their timeline, and they wanna give them a learning point that they can take back to the debrief. It's a lot easier for a man in the loop or operating in the loop driving this uh, a simulator to be able to support that kind of interaction with the Blue force than it is for just a basic lookup table-based constructive a- entity that's going to do a basic threat reaction move at a certain distance when you happen to illuminate them, and then they're going to come back in and as, a, as a simple follow-on. Now, you really want to see, okay, how well is that aircrew in blue fun- uh, appreciating what I'm doing out here, and are they really managing their signatures well uh, the way that they need to to be successful going into the real world?
0: I think another thing in what you just brought up and alluding back to an earlier part of the conversation as well is you talk about learning from those mistakes. You take a look at what just happened. Well, now you don't have to, you know, take off, tank, fly to the op area, maybe get one or two runs, maybe have to tank in between, fly home, find out everything you did wrong. And then, you know anyone who's worked in education, training, or even sports knows that the best way to drive a lesson home is to show the mistake, then get right back out there and do it. And a simulator, uh, and I'll use the term broadly, but you know, a simulator with high fidelity allows you to do that right now. You just, you just did whatever it was—be it a merge, be it a weapon on target, be it some other type of effect—and it was wrong. Now you've got immediate feedback and you've got the opportunity to essentially reset the scenario right then and there without the physical constraints.
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, simulators, they're great tools for being able to have that reinforcement. But what we also find is people who are, you know, work great in the sims, they get up into the live airplane and they're not getting it because they don't, the, the things that they're expecting are not present in the real airplane. You know, today, and, and, and maybe we'll fix it, maybe 20 years into the future, Aircraft 101 or tail number 101 and tail number 105 are different airplanes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many people don't uh, appreciate that fully, but one's radar might be really, really good. The other one is just so-so. They're both good enough to go fly, How you act with and react with that kit is going to be important. Same thing with just how your voice inflection changes under physiological stress. Mm -hmm. Okay, You sound differently, you aren't as articulate perhaps, and now you've not added training value or or, or situational awareness, but you've sucked it out of other people's heads. Those are things that happen in the course of real-world events and it's important to have a blend to be able to go back and take a look and and people learn at different rates one of the features that a training system has to be able to accommodate for is either lowest common denominator or adaptive training at the pace that the individual is capable of learning at Um, today it's all essentially lowest common denominator type training you know we make sure that we are competent in x y and z when, when we go to the future, if you want to save uh, flight hours, if somebody's really up on step with a given capability, a given skill set, they've demonstrated highly proficient in the simulator, they're doing great in the th- first flight out uh, with the airplane, do they really need another three flights in that particular area to get the qual? Well, this gets back to originally some of the uh, discussions that I've had about data. It's all about the data that you have available to you. If we look back in the last time I was uh, at a Fallon range uh, in training, probably 98, who remembers how well I did on that last 4B unknown that I was leading, okay? Uh, I can go back maybe and find an unclassified kneeboard card and and try to remember fondly how great I was, but (laughs) That doesn't necessarily help if I had to put my flight suit back on and, and get in the airplane and, and figure out, okay, how, what do we need to do to bring an older guy back up on the step? Okay, a CAT4 syllabus as an example. So yeah. a lot of that is uh, subjective still because they just are assessing how well they're doing with the basics. But having data available to you that is consistent between the simulator world and the live platform is very, very important. hmm
0: and that's a phenomenal point. And I imagine if we're not there yet, it's, it's it's soon when to your point of the guy coming back for the cat four syllabus at, at the rag, once this has been in place for some time, he can go back or she can go back and see, you know, if we're talking about a, an ex-OCO getting ready to roll in, maybe their last flying tour was their department head tour. Well, what were their strengths and weaknesses then? Not not by memory, not by that unclassed knee card you were talking about, but empirically, you know, where do I really need to focus? You know, I, we've all done it. I know I do it. Like the things that I think I'm good at may not be the things I'm good at. And the things I think I need work on, I may actually not need work on. The other part in for, you know, for the listener out there, a uh, tease of of what comes after even though i've said this is the ultimate episode there'll be a video presentation that we recorded at a tailhook earlier this year with pk and some of our other guests and in it sonic makes the point of the l in lvc cannot be silent and, and pk i think you've brought that out but one thing i want to say about that is it can't be you you and press have both made the point that we need the live training But all of these systems we just talked about make sure that that live training is everything it can be. You are absolutely eking out the most value from the flight dollars, the airframe dollars, the maintainer dollars, uh, the physiological strain on the air crews, everything. We're optimizing that live training when it happens.
1: Yep. And we've had probably about 13, 14 years of development on LVC to figure out what right looks like, and we've had about 110 sorties to this point of actually working with a blended LVC environment to really come down to, um, I'll, I'll say there's probably about six golden rules, if you will, for LVC, um, if I can go through them. I mean The first one is you should not diminish the combat system capability to join or sustain an LVC inv- training environment. So if I have to rely on processing or waveforms, data links that I would normally use in a certain way in combat. And I have to use those to sustain or join an LVC environment that's not using the combat systems the way that I would want to use them or or would be used in combat. The the responsiveness of it, the availability of certain things uh, in terms of the links, quality, All those are are artifacts that you want to avoid. Uh, Being able to leverage open common protocols and standards to enable the widest range of participation is very important. Every platform has a bespoke simulator that the OEM provides, and they don't natively connect together. I mean, a Lockheed Martin F-16 sim may work with a F-35 SIM, and you can hook them up with uh, common cables and get the fly together. But a Boeing SIM and a Lockheed Martin SIM natively don't necessarily talk together. They work with different protocols. So being able to use open standards and protocols is very, very important. Uh, Minimizing the dependency on, on platform operational flight program changes to update empty models is another big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is today, operational flight programs or the code that is used to give the instructions for the jet to process sensor data and present it to work flight controls, everything in between, millions and millions of lines of code. Introducing new capability to aircraft typically requires a lot of OFP code change to be able to introduce new capability. In that embedded training world, traditionally, we have these platforms that will say, hey, I've got, I'm have got i seeing a new capability that a potential threat has, is introducing on in the market. I need to be able to show that in my embedded training because I don't currently have it. Well, most of these operational flight program releases are programmed out years in advance. And trying to insert new capabilities somewhere down the line, And generally speaking, it takes at least about four years to get a new capability onto an F-35, as an example. So trying to minimize that because we want to be responsive based on the types of threats that are emerging. And a lot of this today, a lot of the threats are software-based. Changes in software allow for significant change in capability. So keeping pace with that is important. Say uh, the fourth one is don't introduce cognitive dissonance for operators based on participation in an LVC environment, okay? Cognitive dissonance is that idea that, of that F5 being out there and I'm going to pretend that he's some J20 platform, okay? It just doesn't work because I'm having to make too many suspensions of disbelief to have a training outcome. Okay, that is meaningful. And uh, most of these, uh, most of the peer fight problem that we're thinking about is going to be a BVR type of type of a fight. I can get enough great dissimilar combat air combat training to reinforce how I should be operating my platform against a variety of different types of threats in the within visual range arena. I but I can't replicate the threat density and their effects at range that I'm going to have to deal with. So if I can eliminate those that cognitive dissonance so that the entity appears as he's going to on night one, that's what I want to be able to work with in my training environment on the live platform. Uh, and, and that's uh, ultimately where we need to be able to validate what we know to be uh, a capability that the airplane has, but that the operator's got to be able to deliver with it. I'll say that the capability to scale across the training environment to meet the needs across the training continuum is very important. We are not at Fallon all the time, as in the Navy. We're not at Nellis all the time on the mountaintop range uh, in the Air Force uh, or on the national training range for, for the Army. So at home station or when we're deployed, how are we going to be able to be proficient? I think Sonic mentioned that you gracefully degrade the day you leave Fallon as you get ready to go deploy. And while you're sitting there on deployment, going back to the opsec concerns or just the limited number of players that you have available with you, being able to replicate an environment successfully to train in while you are live out there is another feature which is scaling of the system. And and I'd say that the other uh, last piece is you design the system so that you can upgrade components of the system without breaking the whole thing. So if I find I've got a higher performing waveform that I want to introduce in lieu of the current one that we're using, great. I don't have to throw out everything of the infrastructure that I've got in order to implement that one piece as an example so those are the six golden rules if you will that we figured out that allows you to affordably get this capability out forward fast
0: that is a great uh sort of roundup uh i was going to look at sort of recapping how lvc addresses the challenges we talked about and i think that those those six rules encapsulate just about all of them but uh Unless there's something you want to say about LVC in and of itself, either PRESS or PK, let's just go back and recap. We've we've talked about the challenges. We've talked about what LVC does. Let's just really briefly, just sort of in summation, say what this does for the warfighter, what this does for the aviator. And we'll go back to, to the very beginning where a kid's getting into a cockpit for the first time and he has to learn how to fly. And He's going to do that and he's, he's drinking from a fire hose to learn all these different things and everything he takes in, I think it's, it's probably a little bit different from even the college experience where I think we all took college classes and went, I'm never using that little bit of knowledge ever again. There's almost no wasted bricks in the pyramid of aviation training. So we got to set that foundation really well. And once they have that foundation, we need to give them every opportunity to get better because without trying to sound too over the top with this, I mean, their lives depend on it. Their, their squadron mates' lives depend on it. Uh, our country depends on it, depends on this capability. So what we're talking about here is a system that looks at all the requirements for a training system. It's got high fidelity. It allows the student to be familiar with somewhat their flying skill. Well, actually it does their flying skill because the L cannot be silent, as Sonic would say. We get the environment, we get all the tools at their disposal and we get to look back at it with LVC with absolute pinpoint precision. And I'll take a little bit of a tangent here just to say uh, LVC is a Cubic product. But when we talk about AARs, Cubic has a long history there. And so this is not just some add-on. This is sort of, almost inbred in the DNA of what you guys are building right I, I'm sorry to go off on this tangent but I think it might be something to talk about
1: well Scott if I can uh, yeah, yeah there is not a single vendor that can deliver LVC to the warfighter okay it is it, it is a village uh, that is bringing that capability together and why do I say that it's it's not just about the infrastructure that has to be in place from a airborne wireless network that connects all the pl- uh, live players to a ground station. But it's the simulators. It's the simulator network that they use. It's the constructive force generator that they use. I mean, Cubic doesn't make a CGF. It's something that is present in, I think, the Navy's using next generation uh, threat system as their default uh, CGF. They're using the Navy's continuous training environment. Cubic didn't build that. That's just part of the infrastructure that the Navy has invested in. Similarly, they've acquired simulators, and they've acquired them, both the desktop versions and then the distributed mission trainers of more of the full mission sims, the domes, if you will, uh, at scale. They're investing in the joint simulation environment. I mean, we we need we don't create the models at Cubic that are used to represent the signature of a given threat at a particular distance, whether they're an afterburner or not. Those models come from places like NASIC and MISIC that they are used in environments like the joint simulator environment. And it's really, the, we rely on the effects from those environments to be able to be presented in the cockpits. and. OEMs for their platforms they have to do their own mods to make sure that they can actually take the data from the LVC environment and present that in the cockpits in lieu of what the real sensors are showing them so it does take a group to be able to create this uh, capability. The fact that we are the lead system integrator for a lot of the work gives us a little bit of a a leg up on what it takes to do it. And the fact that we've done it successfully with our partners like Boeing and like L3, uh, now CAE, Um, There's a whole variety of partners that come together to make that capability, and I think the government going forward, the U.S. government adopting those common protocols and standards we talked about before, which were validated out during the last uh, 12 years or so, is the way that we're going to get there, but to your earlier point about recording that data and having the instrumented range uh, system, yes, that was a cubic product and the associated debrief system that goes with it that uh, allows you to take that data from the individual participants and show it in real time and then in debrief. But we've gotten a lot further because, as we talked about previously, multi-domain is now the flavor of warfare and being able to represent those multi-domain effects Visually for 90% of the aviators are visual learners. Being able to represent it visually is important, but it's also the ability to do the analysis after the fact, of to automate a lot of that. Because if you have, let's say just for Grins, you have a eight ship of F-35s, a four ship of F-22s, and you're going against a sophisticated peer IADS, okay? when are when's blue detected when does blue detect red all those things that are figured out in real time okay in and going back in debrief those those are points that have to be captured and we figured out how to do that which is great but I, I, that is one of the examples that I can show that it when, when you have multiple sensors out there all looking into a general area it can get very complex mathematically to calculate the resultant out uh in a way that can be rapidly highlighted as a debrief point okay? there's a lot of mm-hmm. translation of kneeboard cards and whiteboards and, and timelines <laughs> that we've been able to right. automate as a result of the next generation systems that we've got right
0: and that i think you just also addressed the next things to talk about physical limitations modeling limitations you know it's it's all wrapped up in there. And it's wrapped up in a way that it doesn't give away OPSEC to the least amount that is possible. You you have to get out there. The The L cannot be silent. And then it's incorporating these fifth gen concepts, as you said, to bring those things in. And to your point, there are a lot of partners and everything is only as good as the sum of its parts. And this is truth in training. No matter how you look at it, it's it's truth in the training of the aviators because you're bringing the highest fidelity you can. And it's truth in training in that they come back and do the debrief and that debrief is the truth. It's not a perspective. It's empirical truth. All right. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time. I've enjoyed the conversation. Are there any uh, things about LVC specifically or the training continuum that we've missed? I think mean, there's plenty, I'm sure, but anything we want to talk about here on this?
1: Well, Scott, I'll start off by saying I've really appreciated the entire series, reliving a lot of my former training experiences as a student naval aviator all the way up through uh, being in the Air Wings, being at Fallon, going on deployments, developing a training syllabus for a mission thread. Those are all features which have been kind of, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, some of these things are enduring. Mm-hmm. It's independent of the generation of platforms that we're dealing with, because it's people in the loop. You know, it's, it's still the way we learn as, as human beings, perceive the world and how we adaptively train. I think the, the training community is, uh, we, we often sacrifice dollars in training to get operational capability. And it's a little bass backwards. I mean, the reason that we're the best in the world Yes, the hardware is great, but it's because of our ability to actually employ it better than and faster than the potential threat. And a lot of times, when the operators in the fleet get the new capability, we all of a sudden realize that, hey, there's a new way of doing something that we never thought about when we were designing it to begin with. And it's hats off to those invent, uh, inventive people who are thinking out of the box, dealing with the challenges up front. So to the extent that we can continue to support them uh, as, as civilians, as retired guys, um, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity and, and for what this podcast has been able to represent.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to put it out there. Press, any closing thoughts?
3: I think uh, PK said it really well. It's really about the training of the operators. And if we can help to develop an environment that's data driven, that stresses the operators, that is got adequate flexibility, complexity, and realism. Then we can improve the way those operators are going to perform, and that's really where our asymmetric advantage has always been, and uh, that's where we'll continue to be. But we've got to do it together, and it's uh, it's going to take a, a community wide effort to do this, and it's not going to be simple
1: uh hey i just wanted to say it's it's awesome working at cubic uh a lot of the people that were responsible for the original system they have sons and daughters who are now at cubic also working on the the current generation of the system so it's definitely been a family business uh for several of them and uh it's i did not know about cubic when i was flying i mean it was just a pod on the wingtip but uh knowing what i know now about all the work that the cubic employees over the years have been providing to the training community uh can't think of a better place to be and really appreciate being able to represent them here
0: awesome we will close out with that Uh, thank you pk thank you press and thank you guys at cubic for letting us do this well i think that was a great conversation and a perfect way to round out the series i really appreciate you sticking with me we covered a lot of truly important topics and heard from some great aviators as a bonus, we'll also be releasing an hour-long video of a panel discussion we recorded at Tailhook 2022 discussing the future of air combat. The panel is hosted by Ward Mooch Carroll and features guests P.K. Averna and Sonic Kamenowski, as well as FPP contributor and co-host Matt Flounder Arney. I've truly enjoyed the opportunity to get to know our guests and that they've allowed me to share their stories. My thanks go out to all of them, as well as to our team here at Authentic Media and the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Vincent Jello Aiello, Rob Grady, Scott Morris, and Dave Trimble, and also to P.K. Averna and the team at Cubic for making this project possible. Fights On has been a production of Authentic Media in association with BVR Productions. Your host and writer has been me, Scott Chafian, editing by Scott Higby and Tony Bullard, music by Jaime Lopez. As always... Keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow.